Today, we are bringing you increment 199 of Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus. And we begin with sort of a sad but on the other hand rejoicing note to announce the passing of Charles A. Kazmarek III, also affectionately known by his loving family as Chucky, who departed from this life into the presence of his Lord and Redeemer, who received him joyously on January 25th. I realize this message will only be going out on February 9th. This is a little late, but nevertheless equally heartfelt. Chucky sat in this congregation. He was a faithful member of Tetelestai Phalanx. And our love and consolation, but more than that, goes out to his family. For we weep when they weep. We weep when you weep. And we rejoice when you rejoice. And we do rejoice at the inevitability of a grand reunion when you'll see him again. Chucky leaves Charlena, his wife, also a very faithful member of our congregation, three sons, Jack, Briggs, and Gino, his parents, his two sisters, and his father and mother-in-law, who also attend our ministry and have faithfully for many years, Chuck and Kim Buck, and his brother-in-law, Levi, and his wife, Ashley, also aunts and uncles, paternal grandparents, and a maternal grandmother. Chuck was a soldier in the War of the Ages, and he passed with honor into the presence of his Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God gave him the victory over death. I was honored to have been his pastor. He was a faithful believer in Jesus. God chose to reveal his son in Chucky in an especially meaningful way during a service for his beloved brother-in-law Briggs, whom he named his middle son after, in fact, a few years ago. God chose that time and that place, and that particular service for Briggs to reveal his son to Chuck. On January 25th of this year, he chose the time and manner and place to receive Chucky to himself and to welcome him to the brilliant splendor of future world where all the angels of God worship Jesus, the Savior of all people, especially like those like Chucky who believed. And Chuck, in my firm conviction, will be in that chronicle, not yet completed, of faith heroes, the first chapter of which is in Hebrews 11. And on the day of God's own choosing, we will all see our king in his beauty. And we will all be like him. 
where we will see him as he is. Until that day, we cherish that purifying hope and we say, see you then, Chucky. See you soon. We're going to begin today's message with a verse from Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 22. The reason for this selection may become apparent as we continue in our exegesis of Hebrews 7. We'll begin at 7.18 there. But Isaiah 33.22. Incidentally, you'll notice this new contraption I'm using if you're watching the DVD. Our plastic marine, Emery, crafted this. For we now have a temporarily one-armed preacher, Brian Messick, who also incidentally on the side will come to your house and do wallpaper because he's also a one-armed paper hanger. So I think you should call him and ask for that service if you want. Isaiah 33:22, and Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray for the family of Chucky that you'll be with them in a way that sustains them through this transition, and that there'll be many days where Charlena, his wife, will be able to tell his three sons, Jack, Briggs, and Gino, just about how great their dad was. We thank you for this opportunity. May the word go forth with power, with clarity, and with the specific power to build up your church and to advance your kingdom in this world, even in such a time as this. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 33:22. my God is great. The Lord will not pass me by. That's our title. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our ruler. Some translations have our lawgiver there. I tend to believe that's right. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Notice the roles that our Lord has. He's our judge. He's our lawgiver. He's our king. But notice whatever role is assigned to him, it says he will save us. Notice first that the writer calls his God great. The prophet calls his God great. In the Greek text of this verse, the word is megas. You'll see this in print. It's an adjective that describes Jesus, the Son of God, as our great archpriest. Again, the word megas used for archpriest. An archpriest who has passed through the heavens. And he's also called a great archpriest over the house of God in Hebrews 10.21, which house we are, according to Hebrews 3.6. This great archpriest is he whom we have as our very own great archpriest. My God is great. My Lord Jesus is great. He is our great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
The word megas, M-E-G-A-S, is also deployed in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, where Jesus Christ is aptly called our great God and Savior, whose epiphany we await with great and joyous anticipation. For our great God and Savior and our great Archpriest will appear a second time with salvation. He will come and save us. This is the climactic truth of the apocalypse of the three appearings in Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior, and he is our great archpriest. Second, notice about this verse, the Lord will not pass me by. That means that he bypasses no individual person. Though he is a great God and Savior, and he's called that in part because he saves all, he also saves each. Jesus did not pass by the blind man who cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Though there were vast crowds, Jesus stopped and healed this man. He does not pass anyone by. The Lord did not pass me by. The Lord will not pass you by, nor any of those whom you love. He who saves all of humanity saves each human being. He who passed through the heavens, notice this, he who passed through the heavens after having tasted death for everyone will not pass me by. Each and every one of us can say that. The salvation which he obtained for all is applied to each and every person in a way that is perfectly suited to them. He who has passed through the heavens did not pass you by. He did not pass me by. He stopped and saved me. Third, about this passage, the Lord is our judge. This in itself is not a remarkable statement. It is a very well-known truth that our great God is also our judge. It's one of the best-known Christian truths. It is also well-known to Christians or attentive readers of the Scripture that God, whom we call God the Father, and whom we call Father, is called the Judge of all in Hebrews 12.23, and that he has entrusted all judgment to the Son of Man, that is, Jesus, his Son, in John 5.22 and 5.27. The title, The Lord is Our King, is not new to anyone who knows that Jesus is the King of Kings. It is even assumed by most believers that Jesus, our King, will save us. So it's not remarkable that 
God and our Lord Jesus are called king, ruler, lawgiver, judge. Fourth, what is remarkable and particularly noteworthy is that our divine judge will save us. People don't usually associate judge with save, a judge with a savior. But this is remarkable, this verse, perhaps most remarkable to me about this verse, is that the Lord will not pass me by, and the Lord, who is our judge, comes to save us. It's easy to say, my Savior saved me. <laughs> it's not so easy. It doesn't come so quickly to us to say, my judge will save me. My judge has saved me. We may often relate to Jesus in his saving role as our king even, or our ruler, or even as our lawgiver, as the greater Moses. Moses' lawgiver was also a deliverer of the people of Israel. So it's not so strange to relate to our lawgiver as coming to save us. But we rarely, if ever, at least I rarely, if ever, in most of my first years of Christian experience, ever considered Jesus as our judge in a saving role. Consider this. The Lord, our judge, will save us. It's natural to consider a judge as judging. And the way I am designed and the way I grew up, I would think of a judge as dropping a gavel and passing a sentence. We hear of the hanging judge. Like if you watch movies, Western movies, like Hang 'em High, there was a hanging judge, a guy that just couldn't wait to hang somebody after they were tried and found for rustling or murder. So it's natural, perhaps, to consider a judge as judging or as passing sentence. And we may less often consider about a judge's action to exonerate us. But the reason why God, our judge, will save us, or we could say has saved us, because we're on the other side of that fulfillment of that prophecy, is because God the judge was judged for us. I'll say that again. The reason why God our judge will save us, or has saved us, and will save us, when he comes again, is because God the judge was judged for us. Jesus, to whom God entrusted all judgment, was judged for us. You've given me all judgment, Father, so let me be the judged on behalf of them. So our judge, who was judged for us and in our place, will save us. Our great God will save us. The Lord, our ruler and king, will save us. The Lord, our judge, will save us. God saves us as our Savior God, as our sovereign ruler 
and lawgiver, as our judge and as our king. Whatever his role, he saves us in that role. Whatever role God has is a saving role because our God is a saving God, a God who saves. Call him judge, he's a judge who saves. Call him king, he's a king who saves. Call him ruler, he's a ruler who saves. Call him sovereign, he's a sovereign who saves. Call him a God of retribution. And I'll tell you that his retribution is salvation. His divine greatness is a saving greatness. He is a saving God. Read Psalm 68 again and think about that. A God who saves. God and Savior cannot be separated in their meaning. His being and essence is a saving being and essence. In all of his surpassing greatness and transcendence, he will not pass me by. You can say that for yourself. He will not pass me by. To speak theologically, in all his transcendence, he is also imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Or as the psalmist called it, a very present help to those in need. He is a saving ruler. His sovereign will wills saving mercy for all. Romans 11.32 The Lord is a saving king. He will come as a deliverer from heaven and change the bodies of our temporary humiliation and conform them in form and constitution to his own body of glory by the power through which he will also subject all the universe to himself and to his saving grace. Philippians 3.20-21 And again, most remarkable of all, the Lord our judge will save us because he was judged in our place. He became sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 What happened when the judge was judged in our place? Jürgen Moltmann proposes the answer in his phenomenal book called God Crucified. I'm quoting from him now. To understand what happened between Jesus and his God and Father on the cross, it is necessary to talk in Trinitarian terms. The Son suffers dying. The Father suffers the death of the Son. The grief of the Father here is just as important as the death of the Son. The fatherlessness of the Son is matched by the sonlessness of the Father. And if God has constituted himself as the Father of Jesus Christ, then he also suffers the death 
of his fatherhood in the death of the son. These are words that may once have been unspeakable, inarticulable. God has granted our brother, Jürgen Moltmann, the articulation of them. And I'm just quoting them. This is the judge being judged in our place. For the death that the son suffered for everyone is the experience of the wages of sin for everyone so that everyone will have the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. Often people miss the universality of both clauses in that verse. The wages of sin is death for everybody. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord for everybody. everybody. And the father suffered the death of the son, which was the experience of the wages of sin for everyone without exception. Because God, the judge, and his son, to whom he entrusted all judgment, were judged in our place. And in behalf of everyone without exception, he does not pass anyone by but saves each and saves every one. Our great God and lawgiver and king and judge saves every and saves each human being. Perhaps we're in the mood for a thesis now, and it will appear in the notes in bold, bold font. The salvation that he is and the salvation that he brings is universally for all and uniquely tailored to each human being. Each and every human being will be able to speak of how the salvation of our great God came to him or her in an absolutely individualistic and personal way, in a way that constitutes their personal salvation. Universal salvation is uniquely personal in each and every human being's case. So that was a thesis, even though it was made up of three sentences. The scripture writers employed a number of metaphors that were understandable to readers in their own time. And as we've discussed, they used financial metaphors, as in the case of the offering of a ransom for prisoners or slaves, Matthew 20, 28, 1 Timothy 2, 6. Military and athletic metaphors were also used. For example, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, 2 Timothy 2, 5, Hebrews 12, 2 and 3 where both athletic and military metaphors are blended. I think also 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. The judicial or forensic metaphor of the judge being judged in our place is one we just talked about. So financial, military, athletic, forensic, or judicial language. In Hebrews, there's an extensive use of cultic or sacerdotal language and I want to bring that forth because 
<laughs> partly because of that strange word cultic and that it has nothing to do with cult. Cultic equals, let's call it either sacerdotal or liturgical language. Hebrews uniquely uses sacerdotal, cultic or sacerdotal language. And by cultic we mean the language familiar to the Levitical priesthood and the regulations concerning it and the protocol for animal sacrifices that were to be offered by the priests and by the archpriest of that special order. So don't confuse the word cultic with strange and weird cults. We have now a proliferation of them as we have for a long time. In fact, cults have been around since the Old Testament times. As Karl Barth showed in his writings, there is an equivalence that can be demonstrated or at least a favorable comparison between the judge judged in our place and the priest who represents us. And we made that mention of that before. I think of church dogmatics, volume 4, point 1, pages 273 to 283, where I read that. Now, when it's said that the judge was judged in our place by our, O-U-R, place, is meant all human beings of all times and of all human history. God, who is rightly said in Hebrews 12.23 to be the judge of all. We have come to the judge of all. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of the better covenant. We have come to the spirits of justified people made perfect. We have come to a myriad of angels. We've come to the new and heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12.22 to 24. We've come to the judge of all, Hebrews 12.23. When it says the judge of all, if God's judge, if God as judge comes to save, then God who judges all saves all in that judgment. If God is the judge of all and he is the judge in our place, then the judge of all must be the judged for all. He is the saving judge of all. <laughs> That's so remarkable. He's not the hanging judge, but the judge who was hanged for us all. For Christ was made a curse for us, as it says in the law. Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. And Christ hung upon a tree as a curse for everyone. And God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. If God is the judge of all, and God elected to be judged in place of humanity, then he could only justly be judged for all of humanity. This squares with the fact that Jesus is the propitiation, not only for the sins of some, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 and 4, 9 to 10. That we, the whole world, would live through him and 
in Christ all will be made alive. Now if there is a favorable comparison of the judge who is judged and the representative priest who is also the victim in sacrifice, then the judge judged in place of all is compared with the priest who represented all in his death and continues to represent us all in his post-resurrection intercession that he might save us to the uttermost. Here we are back to Hebrews 7.25. But the judge who is judged in place of all was judged in my place. I would almost recommend you say that. The judge who was judged in place of all was judged in my place. If you're alone, you can say it out loud. Or if you're in a DVD group, you can all say it together. The judge of all was judged in my place. The judge who was judged in place of all was judged in my place. The priest who represents all represents me. He represents you as much as he represents me. He represents each as he represents all as a guarantor of our eternal salvation. With the priest who represents us all and each of us, We've orbited back to our passage in Hebrews and Jesus, who is a priest and representative and mediator forever. Like the judge and the judged in one person, Jesus, as our single inclusive representative, is both priest and offering, or let's say priest and victim. This is where we came in with an analogy that was not available to the scripture writers. They could speak in terms of finances, military, athletic, cultic. They couldn't speak in terms of rocket science. That's one analogy that we can use on the level of our time that was not available to the scripture writers on the level of their time. Consider our rocket analogy, briefly introduced in increment 198. We're using the concept of a rocket's three stages as analogous to the doctrine of Jesus' priesthood. The first stage of the rocket is the Melchizedek stage. This stage of the doctrine is analogous to the first stage of a rocket which contains the first rocket engine that provides the initial thrust to launch the rocket and propel it skyward. This is also appropriate to the fact that our great archpriest passed through the heavens like a rocket. First stage is disengaged from the rocket and falls away, having done its important job. This stage corresponds to Melchizedek, 
as the prefiguration of Jesus as a priest forever. For in Psalm 110.4, which is repeatedly cited in Hebrews, starting with Hebrews 5.6, the author of Hebrews, as well as the Holy Spirit, known as the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29, affirms that Jesus is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Melchizedek stage of our rocket ship is the passage beginning with Hebrews 5.6 with the first mention of the name Melchizedek and ending with Hebrews 7.17 which contains a reference again to Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4 which includes the last mention of the name Melchizedek in Hebrews and in all the Bible. In the next partial quotation of Psalm 110.4, in Hebrews 7.21, there is merely the reference to the priest forever, without the mention of Melchizedek. In terms of our analogy, the Melchizedek stage has fallen off, both by design and by necessity. The Melchizedek stage, in our analogy, was necessary, which is why we spent so much time on it. And its engine was required as the initial thrust to propel our rocket skyward. Now the trajectory continues, though, without Melchizedek, on toward its predetermined mission. This second stage of the rocket is Jesus as the great archpriest of whom the scripture says, appropriate to our analogy, has passed through the heavens. The analogy works on many levels. The third stage in rocket science, and I'm only hitting some basics here, of course, is called the payload stage. And that has to do with Jesus' perfection as great archpriest by the completion of his mission. It's in the payload stage that the mission is completed. In Jesus' case, that mission entailed the offering of himself to remove sin. Hebrews 9.26, the sin of the world in John 1.29. At this critical point, then, it should be noted that Melchizedek fell off and away, in our analogy, because he was not both priest to the Most High God and the offering. He was priest to Most High God, but unlike Jesus, he wasn't the offering, the priest and the offering. He was not the priest and the offering offered to the Most High God. Jesus is both the priest forever, as prefigured in Melchizedek, and the offering as prefigured by all the animal sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests and archpriests of the order of Aaron. As Jesus is both the judge and the judged in our place, so he is the priest and the offering, the great archpriest and the sacrificial victim, of whom it can also be said is the victim in our place. This is the payload stage of our rocket ship analogy, 
which will be elaborated in the extraordinary chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews of this heaven-sent and heaven-directed homily. Payload is a good word to use here for more than one reason, because it can also be said of us that we were brought, or let's say, rather, bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23. So to round off our study for today, consider this. Of singular importance among all the Levitical offerings is the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering, W-H-O-L-E, or the Holocaust, in which a lamb's blood was shed and his body completely consumed. As Karl Barth suggested, again, see increment 197 this time, when Jesus fulfilled this type on the cross, the old man was consumed. In the whole burnt offering, there is a prefiguration of the total consuming of the Lamb of God, in which the old man and the false self in each and every human being was consumed in our God, who is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12:29. Because of this, we're not only within our rights, but under responsibility to put off the old man and to put on the new person, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, for the flesh to enslave us to self-destructive ambitions and desires. Romans thirteen fourteen, compared with Ephesians four twenty four, Colossians three ten. So now let's close by reiterating our working translation of Hebrews 7, 18 to 21. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment because it was weak. Compared with, you can compare this with Galatians 4, 9, I note here, where the word weak is associated with the law's regulations for festivals, new moons, special days, days of obligation, etc., Though, because it was weak and useless, says verse 18. For the law made nothing complete. Uden gar eteliosin, or eteliosin, o nomas, hanomas. The law made nothing complete. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope. You can go back to Hebrews 6, 18 to 20 for that. And of course, all our messages on hope. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope, says 719, through which we draw near to God. In verse 20, and none of this happened without the taking of an oath. Not only are we back to hope, but we're back to the oath, which was introduced in Hebrews 3, 7. And again, through 11, that is, really in Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 7. And then again in Hebrews 6, 13 to 6, 20. The oath concept. For on the one hand, men became priests without an oath. Levitical priests were ordained and appointed without an oath. But on the other hand, he, Jesus, the priest forever, through the oath of the one who said to him, he was appointed and ordained a priest with an oath. 
of the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn an oath and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He doesn't say a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek here. Melchizedek's stage has fallen off in a way. So we could apply our rocket analogy to the previous commandment of the law regarding the Levitical priesthood in the same way that we deployed it with Melchizedek. The former law regarding the Levitical priesthood, its law of physical descent and its shadow sacrifices, etc., was a necessary but a temporary stage in God's plan, just as the first stage of a rocket is necessary for a time and indispensable for a time. But like the first stage of a rocket ship, it had to be disengaged and fall off. After it performed its necessary but merely symbolic job, it became useless and needed to be ejected. In fact, it would be dangerous to keep that stage linked on when it had finished its job. So if this didn't happen, it could imperil the second stage and the completion of the mission of the payload. It could be further said that the recipients of this homily would be imperiled if they insisted on holding on to the now used up stage of the rocket ship that was carrying them to completion. They certainly would not be able to go on to completion if they refused to eject the first stage. And you can go all the way back to Hebrews 6.1 where it's talked about leaving the first things. So, Father, we thank you for the fruitfulness of this analogy and we pray that you'll allow that fruitfulness to keep bearing fruit in the future. Use this message to be a source of great blessing to all who received it. For I ask it in the name of our judge, who was judged in our place, and our great archpriest, who was also a victim in our place. Amen.